Would you turn with me to uh, Hebrews 11? Uh, Jacob and Dave have been, did a song based on this passage by, uh, entitled By Faith. That's what we see repeated over and over in this chapter. The chapter, as you know, of faith. And we come to uh, verse 13. If you're using the book that's in the pew, the Bible, it's on page 1008. 1008. Hebrews 11, and we'll just read verses 13 through 16. These, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah primarily, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, bless us with an understanding of your word to believe it and to live it out in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. This whole chapter, as you may not know, if you're visiting with us, is a chapter of of heroes in the Old Testament, but an unusual one because it's really uh, a list of the helpless ones who depended upon God, the disenfranchised ones who depended upon God, the weak and the powerless and the afflicted who found their help in God, who found their life in God, who found redemption and forgiveness in God. It's constantly pointing us to Assure us that in all of our weakness and sinfulness and frailty as human beings who are born ultimately to die, that we have a help in God. No matter what our difficulties, no matter what our sinfulness, no matter what our struggles, we can trust this God. And he's speaking to people who are being tempted to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ because of the severity of persecution that is coming upon them. And he's seeking to encourage them by pointing them to these others in past history who continued in faith. And he comes then to this uh, passage, and there's a unique phrase here, because 18 times in this passage he says, by faith, by faith, by faith. Here, he says, according to faith, these died. And so, he's saying, in effect, in accordance with this principle of faith that we're talking about, Then, in other words, they lived believing, but they died with that same faith, in the same way, entrusting themselves to God. Uh, NIV has still living by faith when they died. Or the new living, they died still believing what God had promised them. You see, in your last breath, you don't have what he promised in terms of the land, in terms of this great Uh, nation that was going to come from you, Abraham, and in terms of your seed being a blessing to the earth. Those were the three things he was promised. He didn't see any of them. 
but he still believed them even as he died. At that point, it would it seemed like, well, it didn't happen. It's not going to happen. I'm dying now. No. He believed it in the face of death. So he was still under the influence. He was still being governed and guided and sustained and inspired by faith, even as he died. And it says, not having received the things promised, but then it says, having seen them and greeted them from afar. So there's a sight that sees that which isn't. And that takes us back to verse one, doesn't it? Where faith uh, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so this is an expression of that, a conviction of these things not seen. So there is a kind of receiving, a kind of enjoying of them. And to say they greeted them or welcomed them, that's like friends uh, seeing each other after a long period of time. And it indicates the joy with which you greet one another. The happiness of seeing somebody, oh, here you are, and you're embracing them. Just wonderful assurance and confidence that you're with them. He says that's the kind of way they embrace these promises. They greeted them and welcomed them. And so they were persuaded of the goodness of this promise. And they had an eagle eye. I love how uh, Matthew Henry says, faith has a clear and strong eye, can see promised mercies at a great distance. He's not talking about physical distance, but temporal distance, even though they're long off, it can see them. Just reading about an eagle, you know, it can see a rabbit moving a mile away. And and that's the eye of of a believer, you know, promise rustling in the distance and he believes it and he holds it near. Um, and he, he is face to face with it. It's, it's like we possess the promise beforehand uh, as though we're living in the presence of it. And we are satisfied on the promise. It satisfies us. It comforts us. It brings us peace and joy. It gives us strength. We really believe it. We really live out the promise, even though we don't have the thing promised. So Henry says faith then has a long arm. It has an eagle eye and a long arm by which it holds these promises from a great distance. And so we begin to enjoy them even now. And that's that was the case with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Sarah. They didn't have the things, but they saw them and welcomed them. And then notice what goes hand in hand with that. They confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is an interesting thing. When you fix your hope upon that which is to come and you are convinced of it and you rejoice on it and your affections begin to lean that way and you ache and long for all of that which is going to have you're going to have in the presence of God. Then you begin to say, I'm a stranger. I'm an alien in this world. It always happens when your affections are fixed on that day when Jesus will finally be exalted. Oh, I long for that day when he will be acknowledged by all the earth. I can't be satisfied until that's done. And you begin to look around when he's not acknowledged and you start to feel like I'm a stranger. I'm a stranger in this world that doesn't acknowledge Christ. And even though you may enjoy so many good things in this world, you long so much to be free of sin, 
so much to worship God with perfection. And so you think, I'm a stranger to this broken, cursed world. I'm not at home here. I long for that world in which I will be made whole and I will have fellowship with Him. I long to be in His his presence. So, we must beware of being a friend to the mindset of this world. Don't try and be at home in a broken and breaking world. This isn't it. All that we experience of good tells us of this other world, which is only good. So we want more of that. We want all of that. We want that in its fullness, uninterrupted, undiminished. We cannot be satisfied. So we can solace our ache in one another's comfort. And it's the comfort of friendship that we will have him forever. And we we solace each other by pointing each other to the gospel and his promises. Uh, but we ache. We ache for that world. And even though everything good that we enjoy is a taste of that which is to come, we need to be aware, beware of abusing this world for our comfort. You see, That's when we really get at home with the world, is we begin to abuse and misuse this world, to make it an idol. We escape by abandoning the word and the will of God. And we try to steal comfort by his, from his creation by an illegitimate use of creation. You see, when he talks about not being at home with the world, he doesn't mean that you're not at home in creation. I mean, in that sense, you and I should be the people most at home. You know, this is my father's world, as the hymn says. We feel very much at home in his creation in the sense that we recognize his hand in it and we look to him and, and can't wait to have the full enjoyment of him as we look and enjoy his creation and even enjoying legitimate culture and these kinds of things. But we long for perfection. We long for him to be exalted. We long for sin to be done with in this world. And we are strangers and pilgrims. And so when he says they confessed, he uses the common word of public confession of faith. And so he's trying to bring together the fact that these people to whom he's writing must publicly, openly confess their faith, even if it endangers their lives, even as these in the Old Testament confessed outwardly that they were pilgrims and strangers. So for you and me, when we confess the Apostles' Creed or we confess the Nicene Creed or anything else, we're basically confessing, I I am a pilgrim. I'm a stranger to this world's mindset. uh, Paul said concerning the gospel that in this gospel, I've been crucified to the world and the world's been crucified to me. He's not talking again about creation. We, We can have a legitimate love and enjoyment of creation, especially as it causes us to draw near to God himself. But he's talking about the world and its opposition to God. I'm done with the world. I'm not friends with the world. I'm not a part of this mindset that opposes God. Calvin made this statement. There will be no inheritance for us in heaven unless we are pilgrims on earth. See, There is no inheritance in heaven. If your inheritance is here or if your, your, your fulfillment is... And your focus is here. 
then sad to say, that's all you'll get. And that'll be gone one day. If that's the total of your focus, and it's not the enjoyment of everlasting life with Him, the enjoyment of a perfected love in a society of His people, the enjoyment of using all that God has given you in terms of gifts to exercise those gifts in a renewed heaven and earth. That's what we long for. That's what we ache for. So it's interesting, though we're strangers and exiles, Paul can say, on the other hand, in Ephesians 2, you're no longer strangers and exiles. That is, you're no longer strangers to God, you Gentiles. You used to be strangers and exiles from God and his covenant and fellowship with him. Now you're not. But once you become intimate with him, and you're no longer strangers and exiles with God, but you're intimate and, and in fellowship with him, then you are strangers and exiles with the world. As Jesus said, I, you were a part of the world, but I've called you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Therefore, you've been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to you. So, a part of acknowledging and welcoming the promises of God is realizing that I now am a stranger to this world, to its values, to its opposition to God, to its morality, to its pride, to its hate. And if being a stranger means that we lose our physical possessions, as these had earlier stated in the last chapter, and even we lose relationships and even our own lives, that's fine because we are welcoming the things that are promised us. And it means we ultimately are willing to lose everything because we're strangers and pilgrims. And we're headed to our true home. And it's interesting, uh, the phrase he uses here in chapter 11 there, it says, people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland, literally a fatherland, the land of which you belong. It's not just been purchased for you or you didn't win it by conquest. This is your land. You belong there. It's essentially yours. It's like you're from there and your family's always been from there. That's the sense, you see. So somebody uh Asked you, of course, you can get real obnoxious at this point, but uh, someone says, well, where do you call home? And you kind of say, well, I hadn't been there yet, but I'm going there. <laughs> That's what I call home. That's where we really call home. So they're seeking this fatherland. They're seeking what you could say is their own town where they belong, where they're recognized, where we have fellow sympathy and fellow desires. So, this is where our Father is. It's where His children want to be. It's the home of God. And that's the And so, see, this is really simply a function of our ache and desire for God Himself. And since we have him in part here, we want the full dose. We want everything that he is. And it says to make it clear if they'd been thinking that is of a homeland of where they had come from, that is Chaldea, you know, where he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham to come to this 
land of Palestine and he lived in a tent. You know, in that whole time, he was in affliction. He was disconnected. He was an alien. And you think at any point you can go back to Chaldea. You can go back to where you came from and you can get resituated and have a permanent house where you were and be among your people and relatives and all that kind of thing. That was your homeland. That's not what they're talking about. Here he is in a tent, not having possession of this land yet, but it says he's got his eyes fixed on his true homeland, his true fatherland. Chaldea was already gone, you see. It was left behind. And now he's fixed on a different homeland, a different fatherland, his true homeland. That is with God himself. So he says, as it is, they desire a better country, verse 16, a heavenly one. You see, they were able to see that if God says he will be my God, then there will be a complete fulfillment of that, that I will have that God one day. And I don't know all that that means, but that's what I desire is this God who pledged himself to me. That there will be an eternal happiness with this God in heaven. You might say that they maximize the promises when God promised them a land and he promised a people and he promised a worldwide influence. They saw through those promises, even when unfulfilled, to say these are only a picture of the greater promise that God has said, I will be your God. These are just emblems of his being our God temporally, but ultimately we'll have him. Kids, when you're going through... uh, McDonald's, and you order, what do they ask you a lot of times? Do you want us to biggie size it, right? Yeah. Do you want us to biggie size it, right? I think that's right, isn't it? Do what? Supersize. Maybe it's a different place I've been to. Supersize it. I thought I heard biggie size, but anyway... Either way, this is what they did with this promise. They maximized this promise. They made it ultimate and perfect and consummate, you see, so that all the partial fulfillments point us to that final and perfect fulfillment in that everlasting joy of fellowship with him. And when he says here uh, that, God is not ashamed. It's that, again, the toadies, that, that little form that means he is delighted to be called their God. You see, it's, it's a negative way of saying he is absolutely happy to be called their God because he's prepared them a city. What higher honor could he pay than to be called their God? Isn't this interesting? He describes himself when he appears to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He calls himself by their name. He'd be like one of my children. Of course, they wouldn't do this, but they say, yeah, I'm Darwin Jordan's daughter. You know, oh, Darwin Jordan's daughter. I'm sorry. Uh, you, know. <clears throat> you see, here's God introducing himself and saying, I belong to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm associated with them. 
It's amazing. In fact, the one he most names himself for is Jacob. He's the God of Jacob. And you think of Jacob and you think, Jacob? Come on. Conniving Jacob? Scheming Jacob? You're the God of Jacob? Jacob's a lot like Peter, I think. and Extravagant, impulsive, passionate. But he longed for God's Favor. He longed for God's face in it all. He hungered for Him. He was helpless. And yes, he had so many shortcomings. But he longed for Him. And, and here you find Jacob wrestling with the angel saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then his name is changed to Israel. And that became the name of the people of God. He who strives with God. So he names himself. He's not ashamed. He's delighted to associate himself. And so, and it shows in the fact that he's prepared a city for them. And it's the same thing as the country and the homeland. It's all the same thing. But an interesting thing here is we always talk, or American Christianity, because of a bad translation in the scriptures, of I can't wait to get to my mansion in the sky, you know. And here's a picture of, you know, you're in your mansion and its fence is up and you're in your mansion and it. No, it's not a mansion. It's a city. It declares to us there's going to be a happy, glorious fellowship to which we are called. Think of that night with three or four of your friends that you had and y'all spent three or four hours and you hardly stopped laughing and you got into serious, wonderful discussions and your life, it was just so enriching and you remember it for months after that. Think of that. That's the city. Everybody you meet, every moment of your day is like that, multiplied a hundred times in the joyous, perfect love toward one another. He's prepared a city for us. And I love how John Owen says, Heaven is the desire in the bottom of the sighs and groans of all believers, whatever outwardly may give occasion. Whatever your sigh and groan is, at the bottom of that, dear friend, is a longing for the new heavens and the new earth. It's what you're made for. You're made to live in perfection with God and perfect love with one another. You're made for that. And only Christ will bring it to you. Only Christ can deliver you from your sins and me from my sins. Only Christ can gain your righteousness with this God and this God in His delight to do you good. Giving His Son, offering His Son so that the way can be cleared for Him to pour all of His good into your life forever and ever. Don't insanely reject Christ. He prepares a city for you. He prepares a true homeland for you. Every gathering of any kind that you see in this world, even those of non-Christians, whatever they even taste of the goodness of a gathering, it's a little picture, maybe a faulty one, but of that final, glorious, perfect gathering. Because every enjoyment on earth is just borrowed from God. Have you given yourself to this Lord Jesus Christ? Have you made Him and Him alone your salvation? These held 
even in death, to these promises. And I'm seeking to point you to the only one who can bring about these promises in your life and can give you a focus and a strength that no matter what happens to you, the most devastating thing can come into your life. Complete loss. Even your own death. Because that's what's being said here. Even in death. That covers everything. And the very worst things that will ever happen to you, you're fixed because you're a stranger and a pilgrim ultimately. And isn't it wonderful to be a stranger and pilgrim to this cursed and broken world and to belong to another world that's perfect and never will be diminished and there is no tear in that place. Isn't it good that you belong to that world and not this world? And that you will not be cast away with this world? Because this world is on its way out. It's set for demolition by the judgment of God. It's already lit, in a, in a sense. It's beginning to burn. We don't want to be a part of this world in that sense. But here's the interesting thing, and I just leave you with this. Even though we are this, thus heavenly minded, by God's grace, we can be the most earthly good. We may be pilgrims of this world, but we're also the light of this world. Isn't that amazing? That you don't belong to this world in that sense, but you're the ones that have the most compassion for the people of this world. You're the ones who have the truth to bring to this world. You're the means of other people finding salvation from the brokenness and curse of this world. What a glorious opportunity that we have. By God's grace. Let us pray. Lord God. Thank you for the testimony that is set before us by this author. Of these who died. According to faith. Looking to that heavenly country, that fatherland, that city, which you had promised their backs turned to where they had come from and their eyes fixed, even welcoming, even rejoicing, even tasting already, even in a sense face to face with these promises, this goodness that was to be theirs. Lord, may that sustain us wonderfully. The promise, as Peter says, of the new heavens and the new earth, as Paul says, contrasting those whose Belly is this world whose hope and portion is in this life. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity to the body of his glory. Thus is the beginning of that glorious transformation where we ourselves and all of creation will be transformed and brought into purity and love. Lord, we long, we ache for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.